Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 here, the word of God. Um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. And so as you look and we hear, you know, last time I was here, um, we looked at verses 1 and 2, which talks about our vertical, sometimes we talk about a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with God. Now, children, I was um, one of the things at a general assembly, what they call those things, conference, seminar, uh, it was about children in the church, and, and we've been trying to do a lot with children, you know, teaching them to worship in church, not just to be um, sitting in a pew being entertained by other things, but actually how do we get you to worship? And they asked a question, how many times, pastors, do you address the children in your church? Every time, um, monthly, you know, ever, and those sorts of things. And I was surprised by a number of people who were kind of convicted of the fact that they think, well, I don't ever address the children in the church. Um, I would say I don't every single Sunday say something and say children and speak directly to them, but um, I do a lot, and so um, I want to make sure that you're, you, you listen, because I might say, hey, you know, you're supposed to be listening to the whole thing. Vertical means this. It's this, it's, what's ver vertical's this, I will mess your children up. Vertical is this, up and down, and horizontal is like the horizon, it's, it's this way. So as we think about our relationship with God this way, it's like our relationship as we look up. And it says that we are to, in these first two verses, we're to, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, that's some heavy language right there. You know, sacrifices, you take an animal and you would kill it and the blood would come out and things like that. Or you would, you know, give things also sacrificially. But um, our bodies are supposed to be like that. Our deacons uh, used to pray and sometimes was, you know, teach us to not just put money in the plate, but put our whole bodies in there. You know, to think that that's because we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices in worship, this vertical worship to God. But what you see is, as it begins to be worked out in these next verses we're looking at, there is also this affects our horizontal relationship with the people you look around. These are, that's our horizontal, those are neighbors. Those are our family, those are our households, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, all these things. Um, I was at a, a restaurant at General Assembly, and um, it was just awesome. Memphis, goodness, you know, be careful where you walk at certain times of the day and night. But where we would go, it's like 
the food was great. And we went to this one place, and she said, now it's going to be a long wait. And I was like, and, and little did we know, you know, she meant what she had said, but it was worth the wait, you know. And so, but she came up to this lady, and she was older, she was like, in her, I don't want to say, older than me, and she would come up, and, and she'd kind of hug you, and you could tell the regular, she was just treating them like family. So she said, what's your name? And we'd tell her. And so they'd write your name down, and so she would come out with food. And this place is packed because there's two, three, four thousand people have inundated this little small area. And so this place is packed, and she can't get everybody's attention. She's saying a name, and she started, it was very interesting. She said, family, 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 and everybody started calming down. She said, now if you're going to get your food eventually, but you got to hear your name. And she was just like, very, but she called everybody family. And I thought, okay, she's treating everybody like family. Or does she recognize that we're all here as a part of the PCA and we're a family and that's why we're so loud because we're family. But whatever it was, it was awesome. And I thought, the next time, and I forgot, it was the next time at church and everybody's real loud and you say, family, family, because we're the family of God. I just thought it was beautiful and she was a Christian and so she had lots of, of, of these things but, um, you know, in her mind. And then the food was awesome, which you know, helped a lot. You know, it, you're willing to wait if the food is good. There's a sermon in that too. But um, this is the horizontal relationship, a vertical relationship with God is supposed to produce. As you come to know God, it will affect the way you, you deal with everybody. It's supposed to. And this is what he's talking about. And that we as believers are to be setting our minds and spirits to this renewal of our mind, not being conformed to the, this age, we're to be different and we're to set our minds to this, this right thinking every day so that we can think according to the will of God. We want to think God's thoughts after him. I want to think the way God thinks, which means I want to think how Jesus thought. Jesus was kind to people, therefore we're supposed to be kind with people. Um, God the Father treats his children a certain way. We don't always get what we want because it's not good for us. And so, so we're like, well, I shouldn't give my children everything they want because it's not good for them. And so we have to think about you know, these relationships. But we have to do this as our minds are being renewed. And so now Paul moves into these next verses, beginning in verse 3, by saying this is what this should look like in the church. And that's a, an important distinction. So in other letters, Paul talks about how this is to transform families, um, how households become holy covenant households, glorifying God as, as the mind becomes renewed. Um, but here in Romans, Paul's concern is for the well-being of that church in Rome. And as an apostle, and as um, this letter is, is not just to them, but we're listening in on it because he's like, the Holy Spirit will apply this to all the churches throughout all time. So we're all members of the church. If you've been baptized with water in the name of the Father and Holy Spirit, I don't care if you're a child, I don't care if you're 100 years old, you're a member of this church. And we look forward, little children, to the time when you're able to express your faith that we believe you have, that you'll be able to express this with your own words and say, I understand what I'm doing somewhat. I know that the only reason I get into heaven is because Jesus Christ died for my sins. And that you're able to make what we call a credible profession of faith. You can say, hey... Not only do I believe, but this is what I believe. We don't do altar calls for you little guys. I don't sit here and say, hey, don't you believe? Don't you trust in Christ? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. No, no. Children are supposed to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Your parents should be doing this with you at home, praying with you, reading the Bible with you, uh, praying over you, with you, for you, the whole time. And so um, we're going to be putting special emphasis, as I've said, on households. 
going forward. Because if the household is not properly managed, if the household is not, uh, the children aren't properly um, raised um, according to the Lord, according to Scripture, it's going to be a mess in the church. And so we have to do that. And But what we want to do is, as younger believers sometimes, or maybe older believers, we want to jump all the way over that and start messing with the government. I'm going to fix the government. Get your own house in order before we try to change the world. So that's what we're going to do. And maybe we will be world changers. We'll see what God has to do with us, but God has told us the things we are to do. And so this is a place where he is telling us, do these things. So he starts right off here by saying how our renovated minds are supposed to think in the church. And so it starts in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, and he says something about this in the beginning of his letter, grace has been given, by the grace given to me, I'm an apostle. So Paul even recognizes what's the cause of anything to do with me. Um, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. It's by grace that I've been given this ministry. So by this grace given to me, by Jesus Christ, as an apostle, he has this authority. He says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, the problem, which is where if you have certain translations, you get the fact that it uses the word think four times in this verse. Now, if you have the ESV, you're going to go back and go, I don't see four, I just see three. Yeah, it aggravates me too. But if you look at the Greek, you can see it, and it's like CSB, LSB, NIV, I don't know, other translations fix this last word think where the ESV says sober judgment. That word is actually has to do with the word um, to think. So the word for think, because I know you're all wanting to know, well, what's the Greek word, Pastor John? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Greek word is phroneo. Phroneo. So now you know that. And the first word here, when you see it says, um, you ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, it's really um, hyperphroneo is the word, hyperphroneo. So you should not hyperphroneo yourself, which means think more highly. You know, hyperspace, you're going beyond hyperspace. If you're hyperactive, you're more than active. So don't more than think yourself. Don't think of yourself as more than you are. That's the translation, but it is this word hyperthink. And so do not hyperthink of yourself uh, more high. Do not hyperthink more than you ought to think. See, it's kind of tricky to do in English is how they do this. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think with sound thinking or to think with sensible thinking. In some translations, keep that word thinking in there. It's the word sum phroneo, which is, so if you're reading Greek, you hear think, 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 think four times. And you just got through talking about what? Renewing your mind. All right. So our minds are being renewed through Christ through his word, through the preaching, through sacraments, through all these means of grace. And as that begins to transform, don't think of yourself as more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sober thinking. Now, just so we can get the, the sense of that word, this is in, you don't have to look, but you can make a note or turn to it. It's Mark um, 5.15, as Jesus had dealt with this um, demon-possessed man, and he says, you know, what demon is within you? He says, we are legion which means, you know, there's like there many demons within this man. And Mark 5.15 says, And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And that's our word. And they were afraid, because Jesus had cast all these demons out of this man. 
So he, what Paul is saying to us here in Romans is, don't be hyper-thinking about yourself, but you think in a right mind. Don't be all crazy about how you're thinking of yourself, but let's get sober about this thing. Think rightly. So Paul is saying, don't be puffed up if you have gifts that think in a right mind. Some people are arrogant and they brag all the time. I'll speak to children. I just had children in my mind, sort of, as, as I'm doing the, the sermon. And I'm thinking, you know, do you, children, you know anybody that brags? And if you're a child, sometimes you brag a little bit too much. Was bragging. I, you know, somebody's always, mine's better than yours. I've got this. I've got that. I'm the best. I'm the strongest. And it's like, and some people follow that, and they love that. But everybody else looks, like most people are like, eh, this is not cool. I don't like that. Don't be bragging about yourself. You need to be humble. Don't be pushing yourself out there all the time. And God says that we are um, not to be people like that. We're supposed to, to be kind and, and humble. But sometimes, I'm afraid that in the Christian church, we've been told to be humble so much that we don't recognize the gifts and the callings that we do have. Um, or we're afraid to make much use of them because we're afraid we might look foolish. And so that's one of the problems with somebody who's learning how to hit a ball, somebody who's learning how to play some sport. Um, a child or a person who's willing to listen to um, instruction, like, hey, don't do your hands like this on the bat, hold it like this. And I just did this with my grandkids. You followed, you listened well, okay? But I've also tried to teach children things like this. It's like, well, don't hold your hands apart, put them together. <sighs> You're always... <sighs> and then you just want to say, then don't play. Or do it how you want. You know, you don't... Even... So what's, what good is that to a child? What good is that to you? We don't receive instruction. And it's those who are coachable. It's those who are teachable. And we all have to, to have this. But you also cannot be afraid to take a swing and miss the ball. You can't be afraid to get out there and pitch. I, I was a pitcher for a brief period of time. I was a catcher. It was my calling because I got to wear the cool stuff. That was, I like that. You know, here I am. I'm the coolest looking guy out here. And I got to talk smack to the guy batting. The umpire sometimes say, oh, I cool it, black, cool it. But anyway, you know, I'm up here. So I went to pitch. The pitcher, the coach was watching me one day, and the, the other guy trying to catch is down there, and I'm throwing that ball, and I go, boom, boom, boom. It was straight. And the coach is like, oh, you're our pitcher. I said, Figured I would be. And so, you know, I get up there, and I go to pitch the ball. I couldn't do it at all because I was scared to death I was going to hit the batter. Couldn't do it. Couldn't bring myself to do it because I couldn't hit the batter. So, you know what I know? I'm not a pitcher. I can throw the ball straight. I can throw it fast. You put a batter up there, it throws me all off. Maybe if I worked harder, maybe if I had better coaching, but I learned through trying. And I loved catching anyway. So, but that's what we have to do. We develop our gifts as we use them, and we have to be willing to listen to our elders, people older than us, people who've been using these gifts for longer. We have to be willing to listen to critique. We have to be willing to listen to help. We have to be willing uh, to, to let the word of God speak to us in the ways that um, when we need to hear it. And so also, as we, think, as we are brought today to the section of Scripture where Paul is talking about gifts, he um, was talking to his younger friend, Timothy, and he's talking to him about the spiritual gifts that he has. And one of the things he says, says, you have that, you're raised in a Christian home. Talks about his mother and I think his aunt or somebody, these women in his household who have 
brought him up in the faith. And he says, you also received some gifts by laying on the hands by the, the, the elders through prophecy, which is an interesting thing. But he's got these gifts. And so what he doesn't say to Timothy, he says, go out there and play. Well, that is what he says. Actually, he doesn't say, um, you know, just sit back and use the gifts. He says, fan your gifts into a flame. Uh, another translation is stir up the gift within you. You know, so if you think about Kool-Aid or sugar or something, if you ever tried to put, like the Yankees, sorry, like these people up north do, if you ever order sweet tea and they look at you funny and they say they'll just bring you sugar with tea and cold tea. It's like you can't mix, you stir that stuff all you want to, but you got to get it up in there. So he's like, you have a gift, stir it up. The word actually is like rekindle this flame. So he's not saying rekindle your gift. What he's saying is it's like you need to do, you've ever had a fire and, you know, a campfire or something and it's kind of going out. You have to blow on it. You have to get oxygen to it. You got to do, stir it up. That's what but stir up where it is. You got to get that fire going. So you've got gifts, but somehow, Timothy, you need to, just, you need to fan those gifts into flame. Don't just sit there and go, hey, I've got this gift. You know, you have to fan it in the flame through exercise and work. And so Paul talks about spiritual gifts in three different places. Peter talks about them too, but Paul talks about these spiritual gifts in three places. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4.11. So he's got these three different places. And the lists vary from one another, but they all agree in three ways. First is that the gifts are all from God. Um, in Romans 12, he appears to be talking about the gifts are from God the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it seems the gifts are coming from the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 4.11, it's the gifts are coming from the Son. And so what we see is the gifts are all from God in triunity, the Trinitarian gifts of God. So don't just think of a spiritual gift as something the Holy Spirit gives you. They're gifts from the Father. They're gifts from the Son. They're gifts from um, the Holy Spirit. These are God gifts. And it's clear in each one of these areas of Paul that he sees these gifts as not just being something you're born with. Some people are born with talents. I mean, there's non-believers who, who can paint and draw. And I've heard some people say, well, if you just did it enough and you really loved it, you'd get really good at it. And I'm like, well, you might get better at it, but you have to have a certain talent to actually... I mean, I draw a much better stick figure than I used to, but it ain't much better than a stick figure. But then I've seen other people, Karis sitting over there, my goodness, she don't even... She's, it's like, where'd you copy that from? I didn't copy it. It's like, man, how do you do it? You know, so she's got, if she wants to develop that gift, sorry to call you out. If one wants to develop a gift that they have, then you got to do it more. Spend your time on it. Think about it. Develop it. Go to other people. Look at other things. Look at other art. Well, other people, you know, that's what you do with these gifts. But that's a, a, a worldly, God-given talent that everybody gets. But then there are gifts that God gives us for use within the church. And the second commonality with these gifts, these three lists, is they're all by grace. It is not because, hey, look at that guy right there. He, 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 that's a good guy. He's going to do a lot more of this gift. Or this guy, he, you know, whatever. God's like, it's graciously given. It's like, none of us deserve it. The last thing we deserve is a gift from God. But we've already been given the gift of his son. We've been given the gift of faith. So how will he not with him? give us all things, but there are particular gifts that he does give out of his grace. So anybody that finds himself with a spiritual gift for use in the church is by grace. So remember what he's saying, don't get puffed up about it. Don't get arrogant about these gifts. Third commonality is that they are all for the building up of the church. 
every last one of them, in every list, it said, and particularly uh, emphasized in Ephesians 4.11, these gifts, these spiritual gifts, are for the building up of the body, for the building up of the church. And the, it actually says in one place, the body builds itself up in love when all the parts are working properly. And so that's what, you know, we, we seek to do is the building up of the church. We cannot and must not underestimate the importance of the church in the mind of God. God the Son became man and died for the church. We remember his blood sacrifice for us every time we come to the Lord's Supper. We are proclaiming it, his death for me, for us. And then Paul is speaking to Timothy again. Speaking of Timothy, let's go to, um, just hold your place there a minute and go to 1 Timothy 3.15. It's in the back of Paul's letters. The T's are all in numeric and alphabetic order. 1 Timothy 3.15. I'll go ahead and read 14 in case you're still looking. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is, notice the word household, um, we all are also given gifts for our households, for our families, and so we're supposed to behave in a certain way there, but there's also the way in which we are to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is full of, you know, the assembly, the ecclesia of the, of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, what's a pillar and a buttress? Well, a pillar is something we should all be aware of here if you know much about what's happening at the church because a pillar is a column. And so we have columns that were deteriorating rapidly under Earth's atmosphere. And so what was happening is um, we had to get them repaired. And we had to mark these off over here, the ones that were built in the 1940s. They are, right? We can take care of those without you know, marking it off. But the ones we did in the 70s, well, guess what? That needs a little bit of work. Um, they, they, um, we had to mark it off because if somebody went out there and somebody goes up and starts kicking how old people are, they'll start kicking at stuff, and um, that thing's going to fall down. There's a purpose for those columns, those pillars that are out there. And there aren't that many over here. There's a bunch of them out there. You take a guess how many there are, and I bet you there's at least two or three more than what you think. And so if one fell, there's other ones that are there. But this is what pillars do. They hold it up. And so he says the church is the church of the living God, which is a column of the truth. It holds up the truth. This is what's happening, the truth of God and a buttress. Another word for buttress is a foundation, a ground. It's holding it up also. It's just two words. They like to do this. Paul likes to double up these terms. So it's like a pillar, but it's also got to be on a foundation. So if you, don't, you can have pillars all you want, but if you don't have a good foundation and vice versa, you got a good foundation, but something's not holding up your, your porch out there, it's going to fall. And if the church is not the church, what happens to the truth? And I think it's on, uh, David Wells that wrote a book called No Place for Truth. And if that happens, he's talking about in the churches. And if that happens, there's no place for truth. One, you're not a church. And two, what happens to a country where the church is no longer being the church? And you want to see what happens? Look on TV. Go to big cities. Look around town here and see what happens when the church stops being the church. So Paul says the church is important. And one of the reasons is because it is a pillar 
and foundation truth. That's our job. Holding up the truth in a dark world of lies, it keeps us from wandering into error. The longer a person, believers, remove themselves from the fellowship of the worship of the church, the more wrong thinking enters in every time. <laughs> every single time. And here's another thing that I hear as I talk to many different people who no longer attend church, and even people who attend church but they aren't really in church when they're there, is anxiety. There's a lot of people with anxiety out there. If you're a pastor or an elder or a person that goes around asking people, you know, how can I pray for you, or they see you as somebody that's, you know, I can share these inner things with. Anxiety, 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 anxiety. What's up with that? It's 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 a it's an epidemic. Jesus says, cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you. It's like, yeah, but this is a physical thing. It's like, yeah, I'm telling you the truth. If I think about it too much, I make myself anxious. It's like I'm also allergic to shrimp and lobster, but not crab for some reason. If I think too much about shrimp and lobster, I can almost make my lips swell up. I'm way too empathetic. It aggravates my wife because she's like, I have a headache. I'm like, I have a headache too. She says, I figured you would. No! <laughs> She says it much more. Well, she has a headache when she says it, so we, we give her grace. And so, and please give me grace, too. I apologize for saying anything. So, um, well, you remember my point with all that stuff. I got, I got way too carried away. Um, when you remove yourself from fellowship of the church, these things start to creep in. And so, what the job of the pastor, the job of elders and deacons at times is, and in your heads of your households, if you have children that may be straying away, so you can call them back. You should be at church. And we've got to really understand why. Why? Because somebody told me I had to be in church when I was in high school or college. I was like, that's kind of legalistic. What? I've got to be at church. I'm... And then in the response, and I know if somebody's listening to this online, they're like, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. I promise you. I have talked to a bunch of people about going to church, and I can promise you this. It is almost exactly the same conversation. I got Jesus in my heart. I've been told that by several people. I'm able to worship God where I am, and I do. I've been told that by several people. How's your life going? Not good. But I can say that to us in here. How's your life going? Well, it depends on how I look at it. What's my measurable? So we're going to walk in the Spirit. God distributes gifts among the churches to build them up. And as we look at these gifts, we have to remember that these are examples, and they are necessary gifts, for the building of the church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And that's not just about new members. It's about building, strengthening, buttressing the church. The people who are here, driving roots downward, bearing fruit upward, moving churches to maturity in the faith, and that can cause growing pains. So use your gifts. We're changing. Our church changes. You change. Your children will change. Your spouse will change. Hopefully, we're all changing and growing to the maturity of the faith. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So as I'm pastoring, I hope if somebody hasn't heard me preach in 20 years, they can listen to my sermon and go, wow, that's better. <laughs> you know, and they might add, well, you weren't that you were so bad back then, but yeah, you've grown. I don't want to go back and listen to a lot of my sermons because I'm not sure I'd like, I'm not right there anymore. But we use our gifts. 
And we have to think rightly about our gifts and our places in the church. And Paul reminds us that it's all according to faith, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so it's two things. One, you've got to think right about your gifts. When I was um, first going to a Presbyterian church, and I thought, well, they won't, you know, you're supposed to serve God. So I can't serve God. I can't be a pastor. I can't be a deacon. I can't be an elder. I can't. I'm not good enough. You know, you know what it's like children, to not be picked first for the team. You know, the worst thing, here's, the, here's everybody, and they got these two people going to pick teams, and you're like, all right, I'm going to be last. You know, sorry, sorry you got stuck with me. And that's how I felt about being in the church, and some of you may have felt or feel that way. Sorry you got stuck with me. I don't know what I'm going to do, but here I am. You know, and then I understood Reformed theology. All of a sudden, I understood the election. All of a sudden, I understood that God said, I chose you before the foundation of the world. You are mine. And then I thought, gosh, if he chose me first, I mean, everybody else first, but he chose me, then I can do anything he wants me to do. I ought to do anything he wants me to do. He will empower, he will enable, and I can do anything. That was freeing to me. Not the kid that they're like, why has he got to be on our team? But God saying, I love you, and I'm going to give you gifts or gift, and I want you to use it in the way that I call you to do it. And don't go running out ahead of me, and don't get all puffed up, and don't start stepping out of your, out of your lane, whatever it is you're called to do. Do it with all of your might, as unto the Lord. And so we get to verse 4, and we see, as the body has many members. We've got, we got you know, one body, got lots of body parts. And these parts do not all have the same function. I mean, and there's other place he talks about this. You know, my eye doesn't do the same thing my hand does. But my hand puts my glasses on. My eyes are very appreciative for my brain telling my hand and my arm and my shoulder and everything else. You know, put these glasses on. Sometimes I wear contacts. So all of these things require different parts of my body to work and function together. And so that's how we're supposed to think of ourselves in the church. We're all part of one body in Christ. We come to the table together in Christ. This is, we're all part individually, but together as the body of Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. So we matter to one another and we serve one another. Six, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's been given to us. And in verse three, he said, there's a grace given to me, but there's a grace given to everybody that are Christians. So let us use them. Now the ESV puts that let us use them in there because it's a, it's a good way to add the emphasis in there, but it really just kind of says to the grace given to us. If it's prophecy, <clears throat> and I thought about, you know, all right, what do we say about prophecy? And the idea is, um, let me make sure I find my, my place here, uh, prophecy and there are seven gifts that are listed, which is an interesting biblical number. Paul picked seven different things. The first two, prophecy and service. So if you look at the second one, we're, I'm not leaving prophecy. But these first two, if prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. And then he starts to say, and the one who teaches, and the one who exhorts. and the one, So, you know, it's got these two things that seem to be offices. And then these next things are, if you're an individual person doing these things. So the, the first thing idea of prophecy, and this, a lot of this comes from um, John Murray, a Puritan seminary professor, and he says, um, communicating revelations of truth from God. That's what is prophecy, communicating revelations of truth from God. Different than Old Testament prophets, and there's like, of course, everybody's going to debate over what's meant about this, but according to Reformed faith and the way the Puritans looked at it and the way we uh, approach it today, these aren't Old Testament office prophets. Some of the apostles were also prophets, you know, John, Peter, Paul. They've written, they also 
prophesy, they're, they're teaching. But apparently, from other letters, we see that there were people who were prophesying in individual churches um, as the canon is still being developed. I mean, the, the church in Rome didn't have Romans yet, okay? So what do we do? They didn't have all the, when the church is forming and the, they're still under apostolic teaching authority, but the letters haven't been all finished yet, um, then there were, there were prophets in individual churches that seemed to have a local authority that were able to speak to issues within the churches. And at one point, there's a listing of gifts that says there are apostles, and under them are prophets. And so apostles are always over these prophets. Now, we believe that sort of prophecy has ended in the church with the close of canon and Scripture, so that anything we need to know for faith and practice is clearly laid out in Scripture. So what the Puritans said, and there's a book I'm reading called um, the, the Art of Prophesying, Art of Prophecy, I can't remember who wrote it, uh, one of the Puritans, Art of Prophecy, and he's talking about preaching. And so we do believe that um, the prophetic gift today, and it's not foretelling the future, it means um, speaking what God has to say from his word. And it says here that we're to do this, in the ESV it says, in proportion to our faith. But you'll like, this Greek word is analogia, which is the word we get for analog. If something's an, an analogy, it means is one thing being compared to something else. So in Greek, it means there's an agreement with um, the faith once delivered. So if you're going to prophesy, make sure it's according to the Bible. Make sure it's according to faith. That's what this says. If you're going to prophesy, the emphasis is then do it. But make sure you're doing it under apostolic authority. You've been ordained. You've been called to this ministry. And you're doing it in the analogy of faith making sure that what you say compares to what the Scriptures say, because that is what I will be held accountable for. It's what I've been called and ordained to do, is to express, to prophesy God's Word to the people of God. And so he gets into it just a, a little bit more. Um, so the idea is preaching. Preachers, preach. I had a pastor I would preach from from time to time. Maybe I did it for Rick once, but um, it was... Um, it just it was a note that said, preach the word. You know, and I guess what I ought to do is take your timer away. It's like, I'll hide it from you. When it's time for you to preach, just preach, man. You know, if you ever watch a good TV show or a good movie, I've, and you ever catch yourself looking at your watch, but you're not looking to get out. You're, I've looked, I've been, I've been to movies before, and I've looked at my watch hoping there's still a lot left. I hope we're not almost over. I hope this is in the end. I hope this is going to go on. Now, I'm not imagining for a second anybody out there feels like that. According to my watch, I have seven minutes left, and I'll do my best. But the word needs to be preached. We need to hunger and thirst for the word. It's going to be preached again tonight at six. We need to long for the word of God to do its work in us through the prophetic office of preaching and pastoring and then in verse 7 if it's service then in our serving now you may know the the greek word for service is diakonoi it's a generic word it just means to serve a waiter would serve everybody anytime you serve you're a deacon you're serving but there's also an office in the church and it seems to be here and there's a little debate but it seems to be here talking about particularly we should at least think about the office of deacon because we have people, men, who are called to this office. So if this is your gift, then and you've been called to this office in the church, then, as I've been told, Reverend Alexander, preacher, pastor here for years, a long time ago, used to say um, to somebody, he says, what do you do? He has a nice Irish accent. I can't do it. Wish I could. He says, what do you do with a deacon that won't deke? <laughs> what do you do with a deacon that won't deke? And that's stuck in some people's minds. It's like, what are you going to do with a servant that won't serve? That's the question. You know, that what do you do? 
And so <clears throat> the elders are to be serving in the way that they serve, but the deacons are to be serving in the way that they serve. Acts 6.4 says there's the problem with the, um, the Hellenistic um, uh, Christians who are Hellenistic Jews maybe that are, um, they're getting served last at the distribution of food. And there's a problem that rises up. And the, the, the apostles are all like, <laughs> and the, through the Holy Spirit, there's a, a point, um, find six men full of spirit among you and appoint them, is it six or seven? Anybody off the top of your head? I think it's six. Um, man full of the Spirit to take care of this problem. <laughs> and so, because we need to be deaconing the Word, we don't need to be deaconing tables. And so that sounds a little demeaning, but it's like, uh-uh. It's a spiritual matter. It needs to be taken care of spiritually. So deacons, you need to deacon the tables, deacon the people, serve the people. Elders, we need to be serving the Word of God, praying for the people, making sure that Worship is ordered the way that God wants it ordered. We worship the way we're supposed to worship and that we're shepherding people that need to be shepherded, which everyone needs to be. That's our role. But deacons also shepherd in a sense that they are devoting themselves to service. So the deacons are to devote themselves to service and it is an intensely spiritual office. And Jordan Peterson, in a non-religious sense, he says this, if you will focus on one thing and give it your full attention for a while, you may be surprised at yourself by how much you can do. But focusing yourself on it. And here's what you got to be careful of with spiritual gifts in the church. You also, you, you guys, y'all all look a lot older than me. You remember when you used to watch the uh, Ed Sullivan show? I saw it in reruns. And they would have these guys that balance plates on sticks. Do y'all remember that? And they had this guy, dun, 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 dun. he's got like all these stick, long poles, and he's got plates. Yeah, and they one oh, it's about to, he'd run over there and catch it. Oh, it's going to you get it. And the Puritans were like, that's what the Christian life's supposed to be like. Somewhat. <laughs> you have a household, and you need to manage it well. You have a church, and you need to manage it well. And then we got government, and we need to be approaching that well, too. But you need to be taking care of all of these things. But what we tend to do is, I got my one thing. Da, 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 crash, crash, crash. Sorry about that. And I got my thing. You know, it's like, okay, but how are you going to be well-rounded so that you can be the father, husband, grandfather, great-grandfather you're supposed to be and be the elder deacon you're supposed to be and also be the citizen you're called to be? You know, that's the thing in the Christian life with our gifts. And so, but if you were to focus on being an awesome dad, but also, if you're an elder, focus on, all right, I'm going to be the best elder I can be while I'm being the best dad I can be. Just focus on that. And, and, and this is the job of the elders to help you focus on these things. And we're going to be working on helping you focus on these things properly. Then it says the one who teaches. And we're not going to take a lot of time on what each of these mean or anything. But the one who teaches is obvious. Then what do you do? Teach. Spiritual gift in the church. As the teaching elder, we have ruling elders and we have teaching elders in our church. So as a teaching elder, I am particularly called to teach. I am particularly trained to teach in the church. This is my calling. This is my duty. This is my role. And I am to do it. It is taking the word of God and explaining what it means. Then the one who exhorts in his exhortation. I am also called as a pastor to exhort people. Ruling elders are also called to teach 
not at the same level as the teaching elder. They're also called to exhort, and that just means to urge people to do certain things or stop doing other things according to the Word of God. So when you teach, you're explaining things up here about knowledge. Exhortation is how we're going to apply this from our hearts, our minds, our wills. What, what do we do with what we're learning? And there's a spiritual gift in the church where there are people who are called to say to you, I urge you, I call you to start this, stop this, do this, don't do that. And that's the job. So if that's your gift, you're one who exhorts, guess what you're supposed to do? Exhort. Don't get all high-minded about it, but also don't think you can't do it because you're called to do it. And the one who contributes, hey, this is the one the pastors all like. Hey, if you contribute money, it's particularly talking about, then do it generously. And also the word can be in simplicity. And what it means is generosity, you get giving. And look at that, it's a gift, spiritual gift within the church. Um, everybody's called to all these gifts. Everybody's called to give, but some people have a gift for it. And it, in simplicity means don't give thinking you're going to manipulate what everybody does with it. Like, don't give a bunch of money and say, I'll give if you do that. Or since I'm giving, you need to elevate me in some way. You just give because you're called to give, and you do it. And then the one who leads, do it with, with zeal. It can also be translated with, with diligence. And so, why does he say that? And it's because leadership is difficult. Leaders in the church will be at the front of almost every spiritual attack. And you won't be aware of much of them. But I can promise you, ask my wife, ask my children. Um, ask your elder, ask your elder's wife or family. When there's spiritual problems in the church that the church might not know about, they're at the head of it. And there's all kinds of things that are happening to them that you don't know about. So, you know, be cool sometimes because what they're doing is, and we're called to do is be out front of this battle, to be out front. When the church is attacked, we should be the first ones that catch those blows. It's just like in the military, the guy that's leading, he ought to be right out front. And that's where we are. And so elders do that, and deacons are called to that to a certain extent. So just real quickly, I want you to look at um, Acts chapter 20, verse 25. So we can see the word of the Lord, what it says about this. Acts 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face Again, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's to the elders. And then you go to Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Hebrews 13, 17 says to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them. It's similar as husbands and wives. Wives, obey your husbands and submit to them in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And that's a scary thing. And I can promise you, anybody that's an elder has been, will be in this church, take, will take, and they do take this very seriously. And then, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. 
Amen, amen, amen. There's nothing worse than a disgruntled elder or pastor. You want to see a church plummet, get a pastor that's done. <laughs> I've been done before, okay? I could say if I start on it too much, I could say I'm about done now. In the Lord, you lead diligently. And if you can't do it with joy, step out. Because there's no advantage to anybody. So that works both ways. Help your leaders to lead with joy. And I'm going to close with this because the next thing is talking about mercy. It kind of goes together here. If you have a mercy ministry, which the deacons do and the elders somewhat, uh, you do it with cheerfulness. Why does he add that to it? Because there ain't nothing much worse or cheerless than a mercy ministry because you're having to give mercy to people that are desperate situations. Now, my example for this is we were at the in, in General Assembly. We are at the hotel, and we're all there representing Christ and the church, the PCA, and we're there, and there's this guy that's standing there, and he ain't happy, and I'm almost positive he's a pastor. In my mind, he's the PCA guy. Because the other guy that speaks at the microphone all the time is standing there with him, who I can name by name, and he's talking to him, trying to kind of distract him and help him not to be so hot about this particular subject. Rob and I are over here going, were you there? You know what I'm talking about? You're smiling. Yeah, so I was like, okay. And, um, and this guy, you know, all right, here's what apparently had happened. Some people had a bad deal from corporate. Corporate hotel people had kind of done something a little bit wrong. But these people down here on the floor, they're working back there. Man, they're doing the best they can. And this guy had called a shuttle 30 minutes ago, and it's still not here. And so I called, and, and uh, they told me they're on the way, and I'm going to do that. And the other guy comes up, distraction. Everybody else is sitting there going, yeah, and this guy's going, 30 minutes ago. And I don't know, maybe he's got to do surgery somewhere. I don't know. It seemed very important to him. And another guy over there, you tell the workers, they're just like, yes, sir. And the other man, he's over there working, he's like, sir. Is there anything you can do? He said, yes, sir, I'm doing all I can. And he walks, and I was like, that's some self-control right there. That guy deserves a raise. That guy's doing good. These two people up here, I'd be like, mm -mm. you know, I'm ready for somebody to turn the tables over, and I'm out. I'm going to get a job working somewhere else. But they were like with poise and dignity, and why did they do that? And the main thing is it was their job. They were on the clock, and they were doing what they were supposed to do. But here's the thing. That man was on the job, too. We're all on the job as Christians. We're always on the job. You might not like that, that you're always being looked at, but in Christ, we're always on the job. When you deal with problems, deal with it with cheerfulness, if somebody needs mercy, and you deal with it with poise, and you deal with it as best you can. I'm even getting worked up. I'm like, Ooh, I'm ready. <laughs> but he didn't handle it well. And God bless him because, you know, not that I'm better. I just saw an example of it. I'm not going to use a personal example because I don't want to do that. But we're always on in our presence in the church. Our work in the church is important. You're here to worship, smile, or weep. Even with children, children you're here, your presence is awesome. Your presence or everybody is an encouragement to the church. Your service is an encouragement to the church. Your singing is an encouragement to the church. Your prayers are an encouragement to the church. And the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. It is a fortress, it's a mass unit, but you are baptized into it and you are being nourished by Christ in it. Christ died for the church. We are called to love it, warts and all, because Jesus loves her and is loving her as, as, a husband, as husbands are to love their wives and will present her, us, 
to the Father without spot or wrinkle. It is truly amazing. It is all of grace. What a mighty God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, as you serve us at this table, remind us of how great a grace it is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.